This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is Ayan Hershey Ali, and when I think of her, I think courageous, resilient, honest, brilliant, and I'm so honored that she took the time to come on the show today. She grew up in Ethiopia, Kenya, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, eventually making her way to the Netherlands, where she became a member of the Dutch parliament. While she was there, she made a film with Theo Van Gogh called Submission, about the subjugation of women in Islam. And Theo Van Gogh was killed because of that film. She had to go into hiding and eventually made her way to the United States, where she is today. Uh, founder of the AHA Foundation, a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, the New York Times bestselling author of Infidel, and the host of the Ion Hersey Ali podcast. You can follow her on Twitter at Ion, that is A-Y-A-A-N, and you can read her other books Heretic, Nomad, The Caged Virgin, and her latest, Prey, that deals with immigration, Islam, and the erosion of women's rights. A very timely book that everyone should read because of the parallels between what is going on in Europe and what is happening here in the United States. Uh, I only had 30 minutes to talk to her, and I could have talked to her for hours. So I'd like to read a passage from the introduction to Infidel to set the tone for the conversation. and. I hope I can have her back on at some point because she's a fascinating person and just have the utmost respect for her. So this is how Infidel starts. One November morning in 2004, Theo Van Gogh got up to go to work at his film production company in Amsterdam. He took out his old black bicycle and headed down a main road. Waiting in a doorway was a Moroccan man with a handgun and two butcher knives. As Theo circled past, Mohamed Borari approached. He pulled out his gun and shot Theo several times. Theo fell off his bike and lurched across the road, then collapsed. Boyari followed. Theo begged, can't we talk about this? But Boyari shot him four more times. Then he took out one of his butcher knives and saw it into Theo's throat. With the other knife, he stabbed a five-page letter onto Theo's chest. The letter was addressed to me. So that's how it starts. Theo Van Gogh, of course, filmmaker, a descendant of Vincent Van Gogh's brother. And this is how she finishes up the introduction. I was born in Somalia. I grew up in Somalia, in Saudi Arabia, in Ethiopia, and in Kenya. I came to Europe in 1992 when I was 22 and became a member of the parliament in Holland. I made a movie with Theo, and now I live with bodyguards and armored cars. In April 2006, a Dutch court ordered that I leave my safe home that I was renting from the state. The judge concluded that my neighbors had a right to argue that they felt unsafe because of my presence in the building. I had already decided to move to the United States before the debate surrounding my Dutch citizenship erupted. This book is dedicated to my family and also to the millions and millions of Muslim women who have had to submit. Powerful book. I hope everyone goes out and gets it. We just scratched the surface uh, during this conversation, but uh, it's an important topic to discuss and important thing to understand as we move forward here. Uh, and without further ado, it is my 
distinct honor to welcome Ion to the Danger Close podcast. Ion, thank you so much for joining me today. I sincerely appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I'm a huge admirer of your work and how, how I mean, you, you never describe yourself as courageous or brave, but from the outside, looking at your, at your, at your life and everything that you, you've been through, uh, and then how you continue to stand up in the face of uh, so much adversity and so many people trying to, to take you down all the time, um, both, both physical threats and, of course, cancel culture-wise today. But uh, I wanted to jump in for people who aren't familiar with you. Um, you're born in Somalia, and you have this upbringing where your family moves to Saudi Arabia and Ethiopia and Kenya and then back to Somalia um, until you're about 22 years old when you go to the Netherlands. Um, can you give a little bit of background on that, uh, that upbringing and uh, particularly the time in Ethiopia when you're in school and how the influence of, of Islam um, really permeated everything around you? So Jack Fast, thank you so much for having me on. Well, I've you know told this story a number of times. Um, I'm 22 years old when my father decides that he wants to marry me off. Um, that is very very common in our culture. I I uh, come from the Somali culture, but uh, just not Somalia alone. The wider Islamic culture, it is totally normal for uh, parents for fathers to decide who your spouse is going to be. And uh, I met with a gentleman, but I didn't like him. When I tried to get that across to my father, he wasn't, that was unacceptable. Uh, but lucky for me, I had to leave Nairobi, Kenya, go to Germany to have uh, my immigration paperwork be processed with the help of my relatives in Germany. And then the intention was for me to make my way from Germany to go to Canada. But instead of going to Germany, uh, I spent about 48 hours in Germany and then I took the train to Amsterdam and I asked for asylum because that's what people from Somalia were doing. And I never looked back. Um, I mean, the rest, I mean, as you say, is history. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot there and I encourage everybody to get all your all your books here, of course, the latest is Prey, which is so timely um, right now with everything going on, not just in Europe where this is focused, but there are parallels to what's going on in the United States as well. But uh, your entire background is here in Infidel, which is an incredible book. So, so eye-opening for people that have just grown up in the United States and don't really know about what happens in other cultures and all the struggles that, uh, that everyone has to, has to go through if you're trying to leave those, those societies and, and move to the West. But, uh, but you land, you get to the Netherlands and you become a translator. And now you are sitting there and you're translating for both, uh, for both the victims of uh, abuses towards women and those people that are the perpetrators at the same time. And you're having to stay yeah. neutral in that position. Um, what was that like for you? How did you maintain your kind of faith in uh, humanity uh, being in that position and hearing all those stories? So I'm glad you take up the translating job. I had obviously other jobs. I started with cleaning and working in factories uh, to, to make a living. Um, but then when the opportunity came for me to be paid for translating, I was translating before, but I wasn't getting paid. And this time I was getting paid. And so that was really a win-win. 
it wasn't that I was just translating for the criminal justice system. In fact, for the criminal justice system, it was probably the smallest portion of what I did. The biggest portion of what I did was either immigration people who were fleeing Somalia, really by the, yeah, by very large numbers and making their way to Europe. And when they came into the Netherlands, the conversations would be uh, at some point, you know, what is it that drove you out of your country? And they would explain the civil war, the human rights violations, um, the instability, the poverty. So the forces that were driving Somalis in the 1990s out of Somalia to seek asylum, to seek refuge in Europe, were almost all the same. And they were almost equally the same for other people who were living in Africa, who were living in the Middle East, who were living in South Asia. And then there were people, a large bulk of what I did was once those people then were given permission to stay in the country, um, I would be asked by, again, people who worked for the government to come and, and then it would be in the education sector. It would be in the, um, uh, uh, you call here social security, I believe, uh, you know, when you go to the government to ask for money to live on. And so again, yeah, those conversations again were, I mean, to me, my gosh, I would say probably the best education I have had in terms of comparing how these two different cultures work, the culture that I came from and the culture that I came into. So the individuals who were asking for money from the government, they, for instance, had to demonstrate that they had looked for a job and Uh. that they couldn't find a job. Um, there were so many things. The education sector. I remember one scene where uh, a mother of a child was called to school and she was asked, um, your child has been bullying other children. He's beating up, physically beating up the other kids. Uh, that's not allowed. Why is that happening? And the conversation got, goes back and forth. And the mother says to the teacher, I told him to beat the crap out of these kids. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the Dutch teachers not just horrified. She was like, "You, the parent, you did that." And and then the parent patiently explains that in Somalia, if another child bullies you, even before they bully you, uh, you attack them and you attack them really, really badly. So violence is a means of of getting uh, of protecting yourself, but also getting things done from others. And violence is something that's inculcated into you early on, and violence is everywhere. It's on school uh, grounds, it's uh, at work, it's everywhere. And obviously Somalia fell apart because of that. And then there was the criminal justice system. And I remember thinking sometimes, you know, we I would translate for people who had raped, who had murdered, who had uh, violently attacked other people, and they would get a slap on the wrist for those things. And I just remember thinking, wow, this is this Somali person, I'm not allowed to translate culturally, but this particular perpetrator, he's not going to think that that punishment is impressive enough to deter him or others. It's amazing. I mean, the stories that you tell in here from that time, it seemed like there are these formative <laughs> moments in your life that you discuss in the in the book. And uh, that time period seems yeah. like one of them. And some of those stories, uh, I, I won't go through them here. People can get the, the book and read them, but um, they're absolutely incredible. I'm going to give this to uh, all these actually to, to my daughter to read. She's 15. Um, and I think it's a good time for her to be reading about what's happening in other cultures. We've traveled, but not, uh, obviously not experienced anything like, uh, like you did. So, um, <laughs> I, I, I'm passing these on to her for sure. Uh, and then 
after that time as a translator, you go to university and you continue translating while you're in university. Um, and that, the time there, that I mean, what you had to do as a translator, once again, it's uh, it, it's both eye-opening and it, it's amazing how you kept your faith in, in humanity hearing these stories. But there's one very good story in here that was uh, to, when you had your friend, I think it was your, your roommate's boyfriend goes to Israel to study biology and then he's gone. And while he's gone, his girlfriend falls in love with someone else and he comes back and he's very upset. But you were you were surprised because there wasn't an honor killing. Now, for ever, the, well, the rest of the West no would be would be surprised killing. if there was, but you were surprised that there yeah. was not, and that seemed like it was such a a shocking moment for the for the reader to be like, oh my goodness, yeah, she's shocked yeah. because there wasn't one. Um, so yeah, what, do you remember that? Was that was that a pivotal uh, moment in understanding Western culture? Absolutely. I mean, it, that was a pivotal moment and I like many other pivotal moments, but it was a moment, you know, again, an encounter with uh, this culture where everything seems to be going very well. And then, okay, my friend um, is unfaithful and uh, her parents were upset. His mother was upset. All our friends were upset, but no one actually said she should be killed or destroyed or no one talked about their honor at all. And of course, that to me was a huge shock. If I had done anything like that, I would be killed by my own father. And all the girls that when I was growing up in Somalia and Ethiopia and Kenya and, you know, all of my Muslim friends, even some of my classmates when we lived in Nairobi, they came from Yemen and they came from Pakistan and places like that. We, we all had that thing in common that if as a girl you trespassed sexually, even if there was just a rumor that you had done that, you would face very harsh consequences. You would be really beaten, locked up at home. The whole family honor would be brought down. And in some cases, if the fathers really wanted to adhere to the tribal code, Islamic code, they'd kill you. And so for me to actually live through this um, experience where um, the woman who committed the infidelity, who committed the, uh, the Dutch didn't even call yeah. it a crime. Right. Yeah. It, they didn't call it a crime. And ultimately, uh, you know, emotions were high. Everybody was was very unhappy, except the couple who fell in love, maybe. Um, <laughs> But the consequences were, you know, choosing friends, the friends who were on his side, uh, they were made to choose uh, to cut ties with her and, and the new boyfriend. Uh, but nobody but was killed. Was no, <laughs> no one was killed. It wasn't a life and death matter. Yeah. And, uh, and again, the word honor wasn't mentioned, not even once. Uh, and what really was mentioned was uh, the boyfriend who was left his feelings were hurt. His emotions were deeply, he was deeply, deeply hurt. And that it was going to take uh, some time for that to heal. That's really as far as it went. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a little different. And, <laughs> yeah. And my friend's parents, they were upset. They, they made that very clear to her. Uh, but in the end, they sided with their daughter yeah. and their new son-in-law. Right. And, and that's it. Yep. The couple are still married happily and they have children. And it was probably the right decision at that point. It was made in the wrong way, but 
it was the right decision. Yeah. And so it wasn't, there was no, it wasn't, um, you know, a, a life and death matter. And the way the relationship between men and women was, uh, uh, this young woman, I, I don't want to say her name, uh, Miriam. <laughs> but anyway, she was not seen as someone who was in equal. She had just, she had transgressed. She had done something wrong. But her feelings, um, her desires, uh, her career, everything was seen as completely equal yeah. to that of uh, the boyfriend she left. And the new boyfriend and her father and mother talked in equal terms about these things. That was, for me, the big shock. Amazing. And, and, and still, I mean, I don't want to say <laughs> it's a shock, but still it's right. something that I think is amazing. Yep. It's and, a miracle in, in human history. And, uh, it, it, and before that, even when you were in, uh, I think you're in Ethiopia at the time and you start reading and you start reading first, there's Huckleberry Finn and Wuthering Heights. And then you get these, there's Daniel Steele and Robert Ludlum. And it just really shows those books in particular, those types of books in particular show the power of popular culture as it, you know, it, it heads yeah. out from the West and goes to these other cultures that aren't familiar with some of these themes. And from those kind of books, it was amazing to me as an author and someone who loves to read. And uh, my mom was a librarian when I was uh, growing up. So I grew up with books and a love of reading. But what those books did for you, as you describe in the book, is, wow, men and women are equal. Women have the same choices as men. And uh, so that was incredible for, for me to read yeah. uh, just through the lens of, of popular culture. And I'd say it is popular culture, and then there is American popular culture, which really reaches out to every corner of the world. And I think that is when we have our adversaries in America, whether they be the Chinese or back in the day, in my time, it was the Soviet Union um, or, or Russia now, or you know, uh, the Islamists in Muslim-majority countries. I think what infuriates them the most is this culture that's produced in America that then permeates through their own cultures and starts to displace things. You know, I, I read those books, the Nancy Drews, and I started to imagine myself a Nancy Drew and imagine that there was a world where as a young girl, I could do all of those things, solve mysteries, uh, have friends, male friends as my equals, uh, go to school, finish school, uh, you know, have be the master of my own mistress, of my own destiny. That is American culture writ large. And we were listening to music by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. And my mother and all the other relatives uh, who are Muslim were really upset by that, worried by that, because that is so against our own culture. And I think if Americans simply understood that you could attract, I mean, you don't even have to, to try. <laughs> People are attracted to that culture. Um, but I think if we, if we were to market the idea of America, it would catch on. It would catch on way better than the ideology of the Islamists, well, the Soviet Union is done for, but the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. This combination of political freedom, economic freedom, and cultural freedom it's it's a very very powerful cocktail, and I think that Americans don't understand it because they live it. Yep. 
Yeah, we don't appreciate it uh, if you grew up in it and it's your normal uh, only when you go outside the United States. That's why travel is is so so important to be able to look back at your country through the lens of other people, other cultures uh, to really come home and then appreciate what you have and then fight to keep it, fight to keep those freedoms that are constantly yeah. under attack. Um, right. So I know our time is limited. I have so many things I want to talk to you about, but uh, I want to jump forward a little bit uh, to... Uh, you go to work for a pharmaceutical company and then for a think tank and then 9-11 happens. And this is another one of those pivotal moments where you examine uh, the, the role of Islam in terrorism. And uh, you, what was that morning like when you uh, when when the morning of 9-11, when uh, when you saw the, the planes hit and you came in and then you have a, the next day you have a conversation with a leader of the Labor Party um, who reacts in a way that uh, very similar to. Uh, entitled college kids lecturing Cubans on the benefits of socialism. I think uh, today there are a couple of parallels in his answer that he gives you that you describe yeah. in here. But uh, what, what was 9/11 like for you, and what, how did it cause you to re-examine uh, Islam as it pertains to, to violence and terrorism? Well, so you say it in that morning. It was morning in New York, but it was 3 p.m. Uh, in Amsterdam, uh, around 3 p.m. And I remember that afternoon, I was being sent by the guy who was my senior to go and tell people on the second floor, that's where, so it, it was a think tank, but the think tank was tied to a political party when election campaigns were ongoing. And so this was the campaign floor. And there was a lot of noise coming from up there into the attic where the think tank is. And this guy sends me down and says, can you ask him to be quiet? And I was dragging my feet because I was at work for only about a week uh, maybe just two weeks. I mean, I was I was a freshman there and I didn't want to tell those people uh, to be quiet. Like, who, who was I to tell people to be quiet? Um, dragging my feet, by the time I make it down to the campaign floor, all the screens have CNN and other American channels. And first of all, that's very strange because, uh, you know, it's an election campaign in the Netherlands. Why would we be watching CNN? foreign uh, broadcasting network and there's this plane that's coming and it just goes into the building and the anchor woman is saying there's an accident there's an accident but by the time the second plane comes the story has changed and it's now we think it's a terrorist attack and everyone is frozen i'm frozen all of us we're just staring and i i'll tell you that was the most stunning moment of my life to watch something like that on air. And then hours after that, everybody's trying to understand what is it that will happen? What do we know? And in the days that follow, even at the end of that for us at night, um, they're saying this was done by uh, these young men and they were Muslim and they were radical and so on. So the next day when I'm walking with my boss, technically, because he's the party chairman from the train station uh, to work. And uh, he's trying to say, to figure out and say, well, this is what I think happened. And then I just say, no, it's not poverty. It's not Israeli-American foreign policy. It's conviction. These people actually believe the 19 men who attacked America on 9-11-2001 they are driven by their conviction in their religion. This is political Islam. This is jihad, okay? And I was making no sense to him. 
<laughs> and obviously he was making no sense to me and but he's the senior guy and so he decided I think to do that little patronizing approach of oh you know you're still a junior you're young you don't understand the world kind of talk <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> he should have read your bio um, but to be honest with you he, yeah, but he didn't, he wasn't, the, that he, he really, that guy was a good man. These are all really good people. But that's also what they believed. America was too strong. America was too powerful. America was invading other countries. And now, you know, uh, hubris, bad stuff is being done on American soil. That's how they understood it. And and continue, some of them continue to understand it that way. So uh, even to this day, you know, you can go down all the arguments. Uh, If it is American foreign policy, then why are there terrorist attacks in Sweden? Mm -hmm. Why are terrorist attacks in Mali? What have the people of Mali got to do with America? Uh, If people, uh, they said it's poverty, but why are these super wealthy Saudi kids engaged in conspiracies to attack other countries driven by at least shouting Allahu Akbar and, and so on. So if it is Israel and the Palestinian equation, why did, uh, why was there that attack in Bombay? Why are they killing Indians? Mm-hmm. And so you go, you start, look, if you look, if you read through the work of uh, ISIS and bin Laden, their legacy, what they've left behind, uh, they barely mention the Israeli-Palestinian crisis, they use these things. They use uh, American foreign policy and uh, American loyalty to Israel because they know that these are narratives that will move American public opinion and the European public opinion. But that's not their objective. Their objective, as they say over and over and over again, is to establish societies based on Islamic law, and not just their local societies, not only their villages and towns and nation states, but across the world. And so if you overlook that very important element in trying to understand Islamist-driven terrorism, then you're not going to solve the problem. It's not going to go away. Yeah, no, exactly. And anyway, what are you saying? You're going to say you're going to cut ties with Israel. America is never, ever going to have a foreign policy as long as the Islamists are unhappy. I mean, what kind of message do you send? No, yeah, no, exactly. And there's so many examples that you give in here that, uh, yeah. that, are, that are eye-opening, that are logical. Uh, encourage everybody to get it. Uh, and I'm going to jump ahead here because I know we're on the clock, but uh, you get elected to parliament. Uh, so how do you go from translator to, uh, to, to uh, think tank to, uh, to parliament and then how do you have your citizenship revoked, essentially, um, and, and come to the yeah. United States? And of course, I'm skipping ahead here because we have about five, six minutes. Of, five, but, six uh, minutes, yeah. <laughs> how do you get to, to parliament? So I get into parliament because the Dutch, among others, the chairman with whom I walked to, from the train station to work, they're trying to understand. They had for a long time uh, a community of Muslims from countries like Morocco, Turkey, others uh, later on, Iraq, Somalia, Afghanistan. And uh, these communities are having a very hard time assimilating into Dutch society. And I had done it in 10 years. And so very quickly, the question was, wow, you did it so fast. But with these communities, we're actually looking sometimes at second generation, even third generation, and we're not seeing any progress there. Can you help us out there? 
So then I obviously started like, looking into it and saying what we are talking about is not just economic problems and economic tensions here. We're really looking at cultural and differences, differences in values and norms, uh, the outlook. And so we, if, you, if you want us to overcome this, stop ignoring these cultural variables. Yeah. And I think they thought it was convenient if someone, I think a lot of them understood it that way, but they, they thought it was convenient for someone who's black and Muslim and Somalian immigrant to say it rather than say a white guy from the middle of the country. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, and so I think part of it was that kind of, I was I was the true diversity hire. <laughs> and then um, the second, yeah, um, the revocation of the citizenship, that was just a political stunt because the woman who was um, immigration and integration minister, uh, she also wanted to be party leader. Mm-hmm. And in uh, her pursuit of that position, she thought she wanted to, you know, get do something that's eye-catching. And she had been campaigning on being tough on immigration, particularly tough on immigrants who lie. And I had lied when I had first asked for asylum. I didn't tell them that I was fleeing a forced marriage. I told them that I was fleeing the civil war. And I had changed uh, my birthday. I had changed my name. And if you had changed those things, which 99% of people who ask for asylum do then she had threatened to revoke people's residence permits, citizenships, etc. And then obviously the finger pointing began with the people in the media who were saying, yeah, you want to revoke other people's citizenships, but what about your colleague, that woman who's in the same political party as yourself? She too lied. And so she revoked my citizenship. And then there was this big outrage and I got my citizenship back. Um, but yeah, and I had to leave under, I describe in the book exactly the circumstances that led to me leaving the Netherlands and coming, uh, coming to the United States. But I think the Dutch, the Germans, the French, the British, they're still struggling with those problems of radical Islamic terrorism, Muslim communities, um, difficulty, having a great difficulty to integrate or assimilate into their societies, the dependence on welfare. Uh, the high crime rates, the kids who are dropping out of school. Uh, and then now, if you look at the subject of my last book, Pray, um, they now have a large number, right, a large number of young men, mostly from Muslim-majority countries, who are behaving horribly towards women, not only Muslim women. The plight of Muslim women was ignored for a long time. But now local women. They're just being raped, gang raped, uh, assaulted, uh, all sorts of... Yesterday, I was reading uh, an article in one of the British newspapers about a German girl who is raped by two men from Syria and one man from Iraq. And then when you finish, when you get to the end of the story, what is going to be mind-boggling, particularly for an American, is when something as horrendous as that takes place, a gang rape, the men aren't even sent to prison they're given a slap on the wrist. They are told, don't leave the house, don't get in contact with the victim. That seems to be the extent of the punishment. And I think that is, it doesn't matter who tells Europeans the truth, they just seem to have botched the immigration policies and the assimilation uh, process of Muslim communities. And these are problems that they're going to have to tackle for a very long time.
Oh yeah, and you described that in the story, the, uh, the difficulty in finding statistics uh, that are, are in some cases buried yeah. for political reasons um, and same type of things happening here in the United States. Uh, there are lessons in here for the United States that we can take from Europe. We now have decades of data and a lot from 2014 onwards, um, uh, particular to people coming in from that have uh, from Islamic countries that have yeah. these different cultural norms. Uh, and it seems like in a lot of the countries that that uh, these refugees are moving into, uh, those that are already there are afraid to stand up because of an, a moral equivalency, because of a moral vanity that uh, uh, prohibits them from saying, hey, this is not right. Uh, but you cover that in this, you cover that in all your, your books, uh, actually in one in yeah. one way, shape or form. So, and Jack, yeah. what I also cover, Jack, what I also cover is that there are a lot of Muslims who have actually successfully assimilated, who contribute to the countries that they have come to, who serve in the American military, but also in the militaries of the various European countries. So there are a lot of plenty of good Muslims. That is not the issue. But where there is an issue and where there is a cultural issue and where we're now talking about really large numbers, the majority of the young men uh, who are responsible for sexual violence in Europe, the majority of them come from Muslim majority countries. That's just a data point. It's true. And you won't help resolve these issues by trying to hide the data. And that's what, unfortunately, some of these governments are doing is that they're trying to cook the books in order to pretend that there is no problem until the problem is so big that you have to wonder, is it ever, do you think this is something we'll ever be able to resolve? And that was my, my, no, we have to go, but that last question for you. Uh, and I wanted to get into, well, there's a bunch I wanted to get into. We didn't hit, but uh, how do you, do you have hope for the future uh, because of all this data that you see and uh, yeah, because of just how much of, of media is on a, may, may seem to be uh, swayed to a certain, certain side for whatever reason. Um, what do you, what, do you have hope for, for the future? Uh, and if you do, how, how do you maintain that hope being in the trenches? Well, we started our, you and I started our conversation with the cultural superpower that America is, the things that make America so attractive, the uh, politics of freedom, economic freedom, and of course, the culture. Uh, and right now, America is engaged in this self-destructive process of where the work is saying the history of America is only one of bad, 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 slavery, segregation, Jim Crow. But all of these things happen. All of these things are true, but they don't define the idea of America. That's not what makes America a great superpower. It's not what makes America appealing to the rest of the world. And so I think if we combine these cultural, political, and economic um, factors that make America so great, with uh, the people who've already adopted in the Middle East, in South Asia, in Africa, there are large numbers of people who've already embraced this American culture and we work with them. I think we can actually make the world a better place. Uh, but I think America has to wake up to its potential. And right now it seems that the people with the loudest voices are the people who we now call woke, who want to cancel everyone and everything and dismantle. American institutions, and maybe right now the fight is at home. It, it's to 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 show, you know, stand up to these people and 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 point out that you look at anywhere in the Middle East. Ask the average Arab, where would you like? If, would you like to leave your home? Yes. Where would you like to start a new life, America? America. Yep, that's it. 
I think we'll leave it with that because I know you have to you have to go. Thank you so much for for spending this time. Uh, I, once again, I'm I'm a huge admirer, uh, and the more people that that read your books and follow you and listen to your podcast, uh, the better it will be for for the nation. So, uh, thank you so much for for doing what you do, and uh, please reach out if you ever need anything. Jack, thank you so much. Thank you so much for observing the time. That's really helpful. Thank you. Welcome to the gear highlight section of the Danger Close podcast, brought to you by Schnee's Boots. Now, I've been using Schnee's Boots for a little over a decade, I think. And uh, as you can tell, if you're watching this on YouTube, there's some miles on these. I've used them in Alaska, in Utah, in Colorado, and uh, I absolutely, Montana, absolutely love these boots. If you followed me for a while, you've heard me talk about them before, seen uh, me wearing them in some pictures. And uh, these guys right here, these are the granites. And these are the first ones that I got. And they fitted me at uh, either Safari Club International or Dallas Safari Club and just fell in love with these boots. There's no middleman with these guys. So they are made in a factory in Italy. And that allows uh, you to get a lot more for your boot, a lot more for your money, a lot more boot for your money. That's what I'm going for right there uh, because there's nobody else in that supply chain, Italy to Schnee's in Montana to you. And you can always call them anytime. Hey, I'm going on this kind of a hunt. What kind of a boot do you recommend? Because they have a lot uh, of boots out there. I think I have eight to 10 and my wife has a couple as well. Uh, but these granites have been a constant companion. These are the same ones that I got all those years ago. Absolutely love these boots. And then these guys right here, these, I think these are called the Hunter twos and love these insulated and, uh, snow muck slush. Just absolutely love these boots. These are some of my favorites right here. Uh, these get daily wear. I think these are called the Montanas, but uh, I just got a new pair uh, that just came in the other day. But these guys I've been wearing for, I think, two or three years now. And this is daily wear. You can tell there's a bunch of dirt on there that's dried now that it's uh, it's springtime here. But uh, wear these pretty much all winter. Love these boots right here. And then these guys, these are the Hunter pull-ons. And since we moved to the new house, um, then these guys have been, uh, have worn these every day throughout the winter because the snow is a little, um, a little deeper out here where we are right now. So I wore these pretty much every day throughout the winter. Absolutely love these things. So, uh, Schnees, thank you so much for, uh, man, all these years of amazing boots and check them out online, uh, Schnees and they have a bunch of other great stuff on there. Visit them in Bozeman, give them a call, talk to them about your needs for your particular hunt and they'll point you in the right direction. Awesome. And then, uh, I'm going to read this so I don't mess it up right here. Uh, so when you, sh when you shop there at Schnees.com and you spell that S C H N E E S com. Make sure you use the promo code Jack 21, J A C K 21. And then you'll save 10% off a pair of Schnee's boots and logo wear. So definitely do that. Jack 21 and these handmade boots, they do sell out very quickly. So grab yours today. Take care of your feet. Don't compromise. Upgrade to Schnee's. And once again, that is S C H N E E S.com and promo code Jack 21. I often get asked about the detail behind the weapons in my novels. And the weapons are characters in and of themselves. I usually ask myself, hey, what would this person carry? What does it tell me 
about that character? What kind of a pistol, rifle, shotgun would they be familiar with? How does it help develop that character? So my first stop when I'm doing that research, Vickers Guides. So these are absolutely, well, they're beautiful. Uh, Larry Vickers, James Rupley takes the photos in here. Got the World War II collection here, the Kalashnikov volumes, uh, 1911 right here, of which there is a new expanded volume coming out. And you can go to vickersguide.com to check that out. This one right here is the expanded version of the AR-15 volume in a tiger stripe slipcase. Nice touch. Love it. And the one over my shoulder that uh, you might recognize is the SIG one. And I'm uh, so honored that they asked me to write uh, a passage for this because of my experience with the 226 downrange in Iraq and Afghanistan. So highly recommend the Vickers Guides uh, for anyone who has an interest in firearms, in history, uh, and or who's a writer that needs to go a little deeper into the descriptions of some of these different weapon systems. So VickersGuides.com, can't recommend it highly enough. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. You can find Ion at her website, ionhersheali.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Ion, that is at A-Y-A-A-N. And you can check out her podcast, the Ion Hershey Ali podcast. And you can follow me at Jack Carr USA. If you liked our conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review to help counter some of those big tech algorithms. And I'd like to finish up by reading a passage from the conclusion to Infidel. And there's so much in here. You can tell I had some notes here that we didn't uh, didn't get to. I wanted to read some passages and discuss them with her, but she's a very busy person, so uh, we didn't get to it. But I uh, highly recommend this book to everybody. And uh, here's how she, she finishes up. The message of this book, if it must have a message, is that we in the West would be wrong to prolong the pain of the transition unnecessarily by elevating cultures full of bigotry and hatred towards women to the stature of respectable and alternative ways of life. Life is better in Europe than it is in the Muslim world because human relations are better. And one reason human relations are better is that in the West, life on earth is valued in the here and now, and individuals enjoy rights and freedoms that are recognized and protected by the state. To accept subordination and abuse because Allah willed it, that, for me, would be self-hatred. When people say that the values of Islam are compassion, tolerance, and freedom, I look at reality, at real cultures and governments, and I see that it simply isn't so. People in the West swallow this sort of thing because they have learned not to examine the religions or cultures of minorities too critical, critically for fear of being called racist. It fascinates them that I am not afraid to do so. When I approached Theo to help make submission, I had three messages to get across. First, men and even women may look up and speak to Allah. It is possible for believers to have a dialogue with God and look closely at him. Second, the rigid interpretation of the Quran and Islam today causes intolerable misery for women. Through globalization, more and more people who hold these ideas have traveled to Europe, and with women they own and brutalize. It is no longer possible for Europeans and other Westerners to pretend that severe violations of human rights occur only far away. The third message is the film's final phrase, I may no longer submit. It is possible to free oneself, to accept one's faith, to examine it critically, 
and to think about the degree to which that faith is itself at the root of oppression. So brave, so courageous, incredibly brilliant, and it was an honor to talk to her. So be sure, follow her on Twitter, check out her podcast. Most importantly, read her books, recommend them to friends, and I hope I can have her on again one day. Until the next time, take care, be safe, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box do you fit in? Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or an Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.